And welcome to a BP Moeka special, Britpop movies mm-hmm. of a certain age. We are doing a special in tribute to a very important figure yes. in the world of British, but actually world music, and that is the lately departed Chris Barber. Chris Barber, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we're just going to have a little look at his career, and uh, specifically in... Uh, three or four films that he was involved in. In his peak years, wasn't it? In yeah. sort of the 50s, mid-50s to early 60s, which was sort of the, the peak years of his form of music, or the form of music that he helped uh, pioneer and popularise. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. We're looking at that. Because, yeah, I mean, it's basically we've lost the, the oldest tree in the forest, really. He was 90 years old, and it's kind of from him that most popular music, as we know it, certainly... Um, through the 60s and 70s began with music that he was involved in because he was a a pioneer of what they called trad jazz, traditional jazz, which was looking back to the music of New Orleans in the 20s, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. But also integral to the development of skiffle and the explosion of the British blues scene. And with his passing, we've lost the last major direct link to the beginnings of those hugely influential movements. I think it'd be worth saying at this point as well. Obviously, there's many, many people who would be 100% aware of Chris Barber's significance in British music and thereby where that extrapolates out to worldwide music. But the reality is that most people, if they know who Chris Barber is at all, they would think of him as a trad jazzer and just a, yep. just a trad jazzer uh, in the same way that they might think of Kenny Ball or Ackerbill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the reality is, of course, while he was in that category and absolutely played the same music as that as his stock in trade, mm. it was by no means all that he did and his no. significance as a mover and shaker and influencer and patron of music um, led to so much more than that. And, of course, it goes under the radar. Yeah, and, and in fact, it was largely out the music that sprouted off the trad scene mm. that his influence greatly lies, which is... Absolutely. The, um, yeah, because when he was still with Ken Collier and then after they parted company and and Barber led the band himself, um, was they'd been doing skiffle yeah. sessions, basically, or what became to be known as skiffle, these acoustic blues and folk songs mm. in the intervals of their of their trad music, mm. um, which obviously made Lonnie Donegan a star. And, and Lonnie yeah. Donegan's Rock Island Line uh, was basically the Chris Barber band in skiffle mode. It's Chris Barber himself on bass, which was his second instrument. And that tune was the Heartbreak Hotel moment yes. from, from the UK. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But of course, if you've got certain things on board, you're okay, you don't have to pay a man nothing. And just now we see a train, she's coming down the line. And when she come up near the toll gate, the driver, he shout down to the man. He say, I got pigs, I got horses, I got cows, I got sheep, I got all livestock, I got all livestock, I got all livestock. And the man say, well, you're all right, boy, just get on through. You don't have to pay me nothing. And the train go through. And when he go through the toll gate, the train get up a little bit of steam and a little bit of speed. And when the driver think he's safely on the other side, he shout back down the line to the man. He said, I fooled you, I fooled you. I got pig iron, I got pig iron, I got old pig iron. Now I'll tell you where I'm going, boy. 
Down the Rock Island Line, she's a mighty good road. The Rock Island Line is a road to ride. Yes, the Rock Island Line is a mighty good road. And if you own the ride, you got ride it like you find to get your ticket at the station on the Rock Island Line. I may be right, may be wrong. You know you're gonna miss me when I'm gone. Down the Rock Island Line, she's a mighty good road. The Rock Island Line is a road to ride. Yes, the Rock Island Line is a mighty good road. And if you own the ride, you got to ride it like you find to get your ticket at the station on the Rock Island Line. And when it was released as a single, which was some 18 months after it was recorded, it was like a bomb going off for a generation. It was it absolutely woke a generation of teenagers up to the possibility of making their own music, playing the guitar, and just having just having fun. And for a lot of people, it was fun. But for an awful lot of musicians, they got the bug themselves, mm. and it led them further into, uh, particularly into rock and roll and yeah. well, all sorts of music, and folk, and uh, and all sorts. And it made a whole generation pick up the guitar. The critical elements, of course, being first of all affordability so yeah. you could afford to get a cheap guitar yeah. and and a washboard and all these sort of things mm. you could afford to make this music yeah. technical ability you could start making a noise that sounded similar to these guys quite quickly yes yes and you could do it all with zero formal training so what it meant was the pool of talent now available for popular music in the UK went from being a very specific group whose life could allow them to become a trained musician yes. down to absolutely everyone and all the working class involved in that. And so the pool of talent that then started to create uh, British pop music in the 1960s was a whole different beast to what had preceded it forever. Absolutely, because I mean, I mean, even Chris Barber had been to the the Guildhall School of Music. Mm. You know, he he yeah. was trained as well. You know, a skiffle. You don't need the dots. Don't need the dots for skiffle. And also, the advantage of playing guitar and almost all the skiffle instruments mm. is that meant you could sing as well. Yeah, which uh, you can't sing and play the trombone at the same no. time, for instance, or the clarinet. But you can sing and play the guitar for trad jazz, for instance, and for mm. certainly for what Ken Collier was driving at. Playing the dots is absolutely the wrong thing. Yes. He didn't yeah. want any sort of arrangements, um, and it was synchronicity of playing. He didn't even want solos. No, 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 no. That was contribution one from Chris Barber. So the contribution of Skiffle, obviously. This is the music of Lead Belly and Woody Guthrie as well that they were playing the the output of. Then led inexorably to, well, it was the thing that Chris Barber did that none of the other trad jazzers did. So mm. when we're talking about Akabilk and uh, Kenny Ball, who were the other two mm. really big popular and Kenny Ball yeah, commercial. with the most 
chart hits of any yeah, of the yeah, yeah. of the Tradders, and with Ackerbilt with the biggest chart hit, Stranger on the Shore, the biggest Absolutely. worldwide chart hit of any of the Trad Jazzers. Mm-hmm. So those two maybe uh, uh, transcended Chris Barber. Chris Barber, the Petit Fleur was of course a massive hit. Yeah, and, well, top five on both sides of the Atlantic. Yeah, yeah and five. it was in the charts for a long, long time, over a yeah. million copies sold. And it sort of laid the groundwork for 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 Stranger on the Shore. For that it did very hit. similar the clarinet uh, lid. Yeah, ballad, clarinet yeah. with Monty Sunshine. Of course, doing that. But where Chris Barber went on to, to contribute more was, of course, when he brought across the American blues artists yes. Yes. to the United Kingdom. People like Big Bill Brunsey and Muddy Waters, Sister Rosetta Tharp, Sonny Terry and Brandy McGee. So famously, that, that, that gig yeah. on, the, on the train platform with Sister Rosetta Tharp. Yeah. And her, and a sort of clanking electric guitar, and her yeah, amazing, like un, uh, the the voice that doesn't need a microphone and can carry for seven miles. You know, <laughs> uh, absolutely incredible. Well, singing the God, you see, she was absolutely. God. Yes, didn't it? You know it did, didn't it? Oh, oh, yes, how it rained. Breaking, don't forget, it, was, it wasn't easy to get these musicians across the Atlantic because of um, musicians' union yeah. rules. You know, if they sent one, we had to send one back and things like yeah. that. And, and it, it was an uneven match. And so Barber, I don't know if he bent or broke or just ignored the rules, but he just... He forced the issue. He said, right, I'm just well, getting these musicians across. And, of course, from there... 
this blues explosion begins yeah. in the United Kingdom, which takes form sort of a few years later with Clapton and uh, yeah. Peter Green and, and, of course, the Stones. One of the instigators behind the Rolling Stones and uh, encouragers behind them was Alexis Corner, yeah. who back in the late 40s was a friend and collaborator with Ken Collier and Chris Barber. Yep. So it all yeah, yeah. It literally absolutely. all ties together. It and then, of course, together. John Mayall um, yeah, started absolutely. his sort of blues factory, you could call it, with the Blues Breakers. And lighting the touch paper, that was Chris Barber. It was Chris absolutely. Barber. If we backtrack just a little second, we've obviously yes. mentioned in the blues, but if we look at Skiffle, every single pop artist who, who made their name in the 60s played in a skiffle band i mean just yeah. about everyone yeah. from obviously most famously the quarry men paul mccartney john lennon george harrison the most famously probably the most famous ex-skifflers to 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 play but also cliff and the shads uh, yeah all, all of those guys and jimmy page and jimmy page all, famously yeah, yeah famously but i mean literally everybody started with skiffle and then pretty much all of them went hang on a minute Rock and roll's better than this. Let's go down. Let's go down that route. And of course, it was the rock and roll that was the piece of the jigsaw that they needed to make the really, really exciting music that they then went on to make in the sixties. But also, I think a lot of them, that generation of musicians, found their roots in in skiffle and even trad to be a bit embarrassing. People have said it's a bit like the uh, the embarrassing school photo in yeah. the yearbook. They sort of brushed over the skiffle influence. There's some hilarious pictures of The Who very early on, I think when they were still the Detours, clutching like trombones and French horns. You know, they're clearly playing in, uh, playing trad music. You know, they're, they're geared up to play trad. Yeah. And that's how they started, you know. It's, uh, it's trad and skiffle. But it was hugely important. And uh, in more recent years, we've seen the importance of skiffle come back up, particularly in Billy Bragg's... Uh, Excellent, excellent, book, excellent yeah. book, yeah. Roots Radicals Rockers, which mm. really digs deep into the into that whole scene. And I, I think one of the important points he makes in there that was that Skiffle really was the punk of its day. Yeah. Another reference to that was how in the film, I think it was, there's so many Beatles films made about their early yeah. times, but I think it was Backbeat. Yeah. Where they chose to represent the Beatles as a proto-punk yes. band yeah, that was in backbeat. that movie as yeah. well. That was Backbeat, where they yeah. really showed the Beatles Hamburg sets and really driving through the music saying, look, this it might sound quaint now if you listen to those recordings. Well, they don't even sound that quaint, actually. They, no. You can see it, they're directing. But they were really saying this was the punk music of its day. Yeah. So, and I think that goes back to, to the skiffle music. And the house would be shaking from my bare feet slapping on the floor. When you hear the music, you can't sit still. Your brother won't dance and your sister will. Ooh, come on, everybody. Come on, everybody.
So yeah. it's, it's impossible to overstate Chris Barber's influence on him. No, indeed. And he always kept uh, progressing as well. I mean, we'll talk about it when we talk about these few, uh, these few films that we're looking at. Um, uh, you know, by the mid-60s, he got an electric blues guitarist in the band. Yep. Um, and by the early 70s... Of course, 70s, quite a stir as well. Yeah, I mean. absolutely. And, and the way he developed his music, he didn't stay strict or allow himself to stagnate in the, in the no. trad style like a lot of his contemporaries did. And uh, by the early 70s, he was making records with Rory Gallagher and people. Mm. He always kept moving. And um, I was lucky enough to see him play at the Fiat Royal in Bath. Oh, about... 12 years ago I guess and he was excellent and he played such a wide range of music he played all the trad stuff of course but he did a, a set of Ellington numbers he did some blues stuff he picked up the double bass it was a larger not a big band as such but it was an extended band that could do everything from sort of trad to Duke Ellington to blues to you know it was it was a very wide ranging set I don't think there was any skiffle in it but it was a very wide ranging and quite lengthy set and he was not a young man then he must have been in his late 70s or 80s then yeah, yeah. Should we move on to the movies? Yeah, so we're just going to have a little look at uh, four movies that he was involved in. He was involved in one way or another. He was involved in quite a few films, particularly in the mm. mid to late 50s and early 60s. But we're just going to look at four that he either appears in or has a cameo in, uh, one way or the other. Mm. And the first, and probably the one that he uh, is most prominent in, is a short film made in 1956, or released in 1956. I think it was made in 54, 55. It's made over the, the Christmas New Year of 54, 55. Yeah. But was released about a year later in early, early 56. Mm. And that's called Mama Don't Allow, which was part of the, the free cinema movement of uh, trying to show sort of uh, working class life as it was. It was spearheaded by uh, Lindsay Anderson, uh, Tony Richardson and Carol Rice in particular who all went on mm. to be uh, important filmmakers over the next couple of decades. Um, and it's a film with no dialogue, but it's a little 20-minute short film about a group of teenagers finishing work for the weekend, uh, and they've all got sort of menial jobs as cleaners or, uh, or work, work in a butcher shop, you know, in a, in a, in a yeah. dentist, whatever. Um, and they're going out for their night out their big night out at the Wood Green Jazz Club in North London. And the band playing are Chris Barber's Jazz Band. Chris Barber's Jazz Band, which is the classic lineup featuring uh, Lonnie Donegan on banjo, mm. Monty Sunshine on clarinet, Pat Hawcox on, on trumpet. trumpet and cornet, and um, Jim Bray on the bass. That's right, that's right. Um, and uh, is it Ron, Ron Bowden on, on drums? drums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So that's, that's the lineup. And also with Ossalie Patterson mm. on, uh, on vocals, which um, I worked out, she must have literally just joined the band. She joined the band in December 54, and it, they began filming it in December 54, so she would literally have just, just joined the band as a member at that point. And it's, um, and yeah, it's a fascinating little film, and I think a really good little film. It's, done, it's not exactly a documentary, because there is a sort no, of I mean, story the, the, to it. The, 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 the footage that they show in each of those workplaces is obviously there yeah. to show the, this is what they look like and what they do in their ordinary daytime. And now we're going to see them there. Because, of course, they have the toffs coming in as well, don't they? Yeah, the they? toffs show up. Yeah. And that's, that's a little bit contrived. But, yeah, because it's, it's sort of saying these are the working class kids. Mm. You know, on, this is their night out. This is what they live for. And then you've got this bunch and they're taking it seriously. And then you've got this bunch of of poshos 
Yeah, uh, also young, but they show up in a, is it a Rolls Royce or a Bentley or something, isn't it? They, yeah, um, well, where, there's a very nice moment where furs. he takes off the, uh, it's, 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 it's not a Rolls because it doesn't have the angel. He no. takes off the guy at the front, the little figurehead at the front and puts it in his pocket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Puts so it in his pocket so it doesn't get nicked. nicked. Yeah, I think that's quite, <laughs> quite excellent. Um, yeah. Uh, and, but but they sort of disrupt the night, don't they? They're interlopers. It's, sh- it's showing they're sort of interlopers, and they're not taking it as seriously as the as the kids for whom no. this is their one one moment, you know, of the week uh, is what they live for, living for the weekend kind of thing. Yeah, to dance to it, and it's directed by Tony Richardson and Carol Rice, who both went on to be, you know, in the whole kitchen sink yeah uh, steam of movies. Which we'll talk about a little bit more in a minute, but uh, they were, became important filmmakers in, in that scene. Uh, Walter Lasserly was the cinematographer, and he was he, it was shot on sixty millimeter, mm. which accounts for sort of the grainy thing because it was actually in a real jazz club. It was, um, which was in the function room of the Fishmongers Arms, yeah. uh, <laughs> the wonderfully named Fishmongers Arms in, uh, in in Wood Green. I think it was called the Bourne Hall, and that had been a, a dance hall since at least the nineteen twenties and had had loads of musicians already pass through it. It had had uh, Django Reinhardt had appeared appeared there in the 30s. Yeah, even he had been in there. So it was was quite a well-known... So by the mid-50s, it was quite a well-established music venue, Mm. even by then. Um, But the thing is, these days, it's easy to dismiss trad as sort of old fart music, Mm. old man music, backward-looking music. And, you know, it always appears when you see bands playing it in pubs and whatnot, it always seems to be staffed by bitter 80-something alcoholics, you know. Mm. But, it's, but the important thing to remember is that this was youth music and this was our mm. first youth movement, our first youth cult in this country, was enjoying trad, just loving trad. As is before rock and roll, and this was the music that young working-class people, or young people generally, loved. And you look at the faces in this film... And, you know, several of them are clutching pints, but most of them don't look old enough no, to drink. They're very young, yeah. Yeah, they look about, some of them look 16, 15, 14, oh. you know, they, they look really young, a lot of the people there. And this is the audience for this music, and that's easy to forget. That's easy to forget because this sort of music didn't attain another generation of listeners. And, and this generation grew old with it. Yeah. So when you see people going to enjoy the music, I mean, I love trad. And I happily enjoy it and everything. Not that I'm a spring chicken, of course, but it's um, but I always have done. But but it 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 was music that was enjoyed by very young people, mm. very young people, teenagers really. And that's easy to forget um, because it because that audience grew old with it and are still the people that show up uh, to see this music now. Mm. But it just shows also shows how exciting. Uh, this form of music was. It's not. This isn't music for theatres and and the supper club circuit. This is sweaty, smoke-filled back rooms and basements that this music plays out in. You know, and you see the people taking it. You know, uh, the, the audience is dancing and sweating, and this is their only. This is their moment, and this is their excitement. Yeah. You know. And and it's and we mustn't forget that with this with this music it was tremendously exciting. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice little um, snapshot into that era of uh, of youth culture in Britain. We've got people proto Ted's proto Teddy boys, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 and and lots of sort of um, young sort of sweated and sw- sweating sweated ladies, <laughs> particularly one in particular, yeah. sort of Lindy Hop. Yeah. 
style dancer, um, you know, who's doing a lot of that. And there's an awful lot of dancing there. Everybody's Mm. dressed up to the nines as much as they can within their means and their working class means. And that comes through. That comes through really nicely. And the whole thing is very well shot. Yeah. With a real understanding directorially and in the photo uh, setups. Mm of action and movement it isn't done by numbers or or sort of with one eye on the clock as a, so many of no. the first rock and roll films that came after it which are yeah. part of our series here on Britpop movies of a certain yeah. age so many of them the the direction is lackluster or just fundamentally yeah. fails to understand the need for you can't just stick a camera in front of a, a band and expect it to convey the energy and the, no. the smells of the music. Yeah. Um, you can almost smell this. Yeah, this, this one you really can. Yeah, uh, and in fact, we've mentioned in this series uh, uh, Rock You Sinners, yeah. which is a very flawed and, frankly, overall not very good film. But I think the scenes in that that really work, as we mentioned, are the scenes in the dance hall mm. in Rock You Sinners, which I think compare really well yeah. and, uh, and must, have been, must have been shot roughly around the same time as the scenes in this film Mama Don't Allow um, and I think they, they're similarly visceral because it's documentary style yeah. and shot on 16mm probably and uh, it's it, they're similarly visceral and just in those moments in, in Rock You Sinners and throughout pretty much the entirety of Mama Don't Allow you get the, the feeling of what it must have been like to be, to be in a, a, a youth uh, oriented dance hall or, or back room like that and you can really get the visceral feel of the music and the excitement of, of, yeah. of, the, of that scene and what's nice about it is obviously there's not a word of dialogue in the whole no. movie but the music comes in right from the start so you see yeah. uh, Chris Barber band setting up and you yeah. see everybody they're tuning up Warming the two up. horns tune up together uh, Lonnie yep. Donegan uh, who you don't see a lot of actually in it no uh, despite him obviously well they didn't know he was going to be the big no. star at that time and that's the bottom well, it line was that, it. it was that year the thing is when they filmed it they'd not long recorded Rock Island Line as part of their their first album New Orleans Joys mm. so it's that line we're looking at the very lineup that recorded that Chris Farber album New Orleans Joys which included Rock Island Line mm. and that hit the charts at the beginning of 56 so they've just recorded it as we see them in the film and Donegan, him in particular, is just about to become a, a major star, a major mover in the music scene, shortly after this film was released. So, yeah, but nobody knew at the time that he was... I think he might have known secretly that he was going to be a star, but... Um, nobody else said, no. You see him but, tuning but, up, yeah. and that's pretty much all. Mind you, yeah. so the music starts there, and, it's, uh, and it builds up through a sort of bluesy you know a bluesy churner and then mm. as it goes through they go through different vibes and, uh, and mm. moods mainly upbeat up tempo yes. four to the floor trad jazzers yeah but you have a, a raspy raunchy blues shouter from Ottilie Patterson again Absolutely. you don't really see her very much you, you see no, her she's sort of glimpsed, a quite but... dull lit, dull dully lit uh, Artie <laughs> Patterson, sort of in a spectral yeah. vision at the back of the, uh, you know, hall. Uh, but you don't really see a lot of her, and you don't see Lonnie Donegan singing at all. But I guess the point of the film is to look more at the the kids. Yeah, that, that's what the film's more. That's what it's about, in. and they're just they're yeah. just facilitating it really as the as the musicians involved. Yeah, they're ever present, but the focus is on the is on the mm. kids. Quick word on a couple of the guys there, of course, of interest. One being yeah. Pat Halcox 
worked yeah. with um, Chris Barber for for over 50 years. Yeah, so, pretty much the entirety. Of his yeah, career. over 50 years, which is an incredible yeah. uh, partnership uh, yeah. of musicians. Yeah, because uh, he took uh, Collier's place in the partner mm. company with Collier and stuck with him pretty much. I think 2010 he left or something. Yeah, but it's that was that was only because he retired. You know, yeah. so it wasn't yeah. that he, he left because they he didn't they didn't no. want to work together. It was just like <laughs> I'm hanging my corner up. See you later. It was that sort of thing. So yeah. that's quite amazing. Um, yeah, yeah, and of yeah. course, the other one of worst we've mentioned him already, but Ron Bowden. It's worth saying he yes. started with Ken Collier as well, and went yeah, yeah. on to be um, Kenny Ball's uh, yes. drummer in Kenny's sort of very very successful years. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So all the times when you see on the uh, Morecambe and Wise show. Yeah, yeah, it'll be Ron Bowden sitting there thumping the skins. Yeah, and I think in, um, is it Be My Guest or or Live It Up? I think it's Live It Up. Mm. They show up in that, and I believe it's Ron Bowden with his name on the drum it kit is. playing there because we, we glimpsed Kenny Ball and his band. Yeah, yeah. One, one, one thing I liked is one, on one of the shots uh, in the club there, you see a poster mm. just behind, and George Melly's name's on it. So, yes. Yeah, George Melly's name. Obviously, yeah, George Melly next appearing or, or just had appeared. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. So you get a yeah, sort of yeah. small idea of the, of the scene that's, yeah. that's on there. But it's it's a really a nice short film. You know, it's, yeah. it's got a lot to commend it. Yeah, and leads on to some major careers for both the musicians and yeah. the filmmakers. It does, yeah. Should we move on to... Yeah, so talking uh, of which... Now that we're talking yeah. about kitchen sink directors, uh, and particularly Tony Richardson, yep. uh, we yep. move to 1959's Look Back in Anger. Look Back in Anger. Which was, of course, the yes. movie version of the hugely successful John Osborne stage play. Yes, yes. That really started the angry young man sort of movement of the of the mid to late fifties in, yeah. in theatre land. Well, and and in, and in cinema, culture, anyway. yeah, 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 and and and, and novels, of course, you know, uh, with Alan Silito and people yeah. like that. Um, yeah, it's 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 an interesting film. Well, of course, we're, we're we're mentioning this because Chris Barber and his band. Well, they're pretty much the first thing you see in the film. Yes, in the club, because uh, Jimmy, the uh, the main character yep. of of Look Back in Anger, as played by uh, 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 Richard Burton here, is an amateur jazz trumpeter. Yeah. And we meet him in this film, sitting in with the Chris Barber band. So the first thing you see is them playing some really hot yeah. jazz, again in a sweaty bass. Uh, brilliantly with filmed with again. Well, I mean, it would be, you know, but it, it, it again, it's got feet tapping, it's got hand clapping, it's got... You can see the smoke, you can feel the, the yeah. sweat, you can see you can Richard Burton giving it all he's got at the front of this band yeah. which is sort of moving behind him it's a great it's a great scene yeah and those sort of foot level shots yeah. of, the, of the camera and everything of everyone dancing it was it's amazing it's a really really well shot uh, opening sequence and um, one I think the rest of the film struggles to live up to actually <laughs> It's a really good shot, and you can tell. I, I think. Well, I'm almost certain it's that. Uh, Burton. It's obviously not him playing the trumpet. I presume it's he's miming to Pat Hawcox. I presume. 
it's his trumpet that he's uh, that he's I would have thought to. so yeah but he's he's clearly learned some of the fingering you know to look accurate I don't think he's learned it from scratch I, I think I mentioned the other day that um, Robert De Niro when he made the film New York New York for Martin Scorsese actually learnt the saxophone from scratch that's how method he was and I don't think Burton went quite that no. far but he's clearly but he's clearly taken some effort to uh, to learn some trumpet fingering yeah and and has spent time with the music that he's that he's miming to to make it look like he's he's playing and I think I don't think he does a very yeah you know, yeah no he does, does a fine. great job yeah, there yeah, yeah. does a great job there and it's just brilliant and where he leaves the stage at the end of that sequence and takes his mate's drink and has a good old glug yeah off that you know there's something really real and visceral about yeah. that and you feel like he's exhausted himself from from playing that that sequence mm. um, and and of course. Uh, Barbara and his band are, are, are mentioned by name in the film because I go back to the club later on in the film and they say Chris Barber's still here in town. Yeah, you know, he's here for another two nights. Do you want to come along? And um, the fact is, although I think by 1959 when this film came out, I can't imagine Chris Barber was still playing pub basements. No, and letting random letting random people sit in. You but, never um, know. You never know. He was a music know. enthusiast, so he was. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past him. No, indeed. I doubt he'd be doing a residency though. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not in a not in a pub basement. No, no but no. those couple of sequences where he appears in the film. I think are very effective. Yeah. Uh, I think the film itself is flawed. And oh, yeah, it's, been, so. it's been mentioned, obviously it's a very important play that initially was directed by Tony Richardson, mm. but it does suffer from... Um, and we're not talking too much about the film itself, no. we're talking about the music, but, but just a, a little mention that I, I think although we have Richard Burton, who's one of our finest actors ever, at the peak of his powers in this film, he's too old... And two thick. Not that he's an old man, but I think Jimmy's. They say he's 25, and Burton was at least 35, uh, 34, 35 when he made this film. Mm. And he's too old and too thick set and too imposing. Because when it first was produced on the stage, it was Kenneth Haig mm. uh, was the actor who played him. Who who uh, pop music movie fans will know as Hard being Days the Night, yeah. Hard Days Night TV executive. The sequence with George Harrison, mm. you know, cheeky baby, you know, give yeah. him a Kokorama or don't, don't breathe on me, Adrian. You know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So it, he plays it. And in fact, on my DVD of of Look Back in Anger, there's a little clip of Kenneth Haig performing the role uh, of Jimmy, reenacting it. And it's such a different performance to mm. what Richard Burton I can gives, and and it's so much lighter. And he's a less obviously imposing figure, and his flare-ups, because uh, obviously the character of Jimmy is supposed to be a working-class lad who's gone to university, had his expectations raised, a bright working-class lad, yeah, you know, had his expectations raised, and then found himself on the scrap heap again, and he's taking out his frustrations mm. on everyone around him, particularly his immediate loved ones especially his wife but Burton's thing it just comes across as sort of he just comes across as an abusive mentally unstable bully mm. yeah um, and you don't get the hurt as such that yeah that you don't feel Kenneth his in the pain so much no, uh, no. I, I mean I agree with you uh, uh, I think that's partly to do with his voice and his demeanour he's a yeah. very powerful actor yes. with absolute bucket loads of charisma Yes, uh, yes. And this character almost needs to be able to sink into the uh, wallpaper sometimes. Yeah. He's a sort of weak man, really, isn't he? Yeah, he's, in many, he's, in, he's had enough. A broken, weak man. In many respects. Um, I mean, I, I think that Burton plays it very well. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, he, he, he absolutely connects with the emotive drama of it, and he gives a mm. very good performance, but he's just the mm. wrong cog. 
uh, yeah. in the machine. And Kenneth Haig had, of course, been a sensation on the play. It wasn't just that he was the guy who had done the role. Oh, he's the guy mm. who done the role. He'd done the role and been an absolute sensation on stage with mm, it. He mm, was mm. fated, won awards. It was it, it was his role. And it's mm. interesting that obviously he wasn't a big enough box office name for it. Uh, yeah. in, in probably in Harry Saltzman, who was the producer of this, in his idea, it was probably, we need box office to, to yeah. push this We need through. the best. Uh, and they got that, obviously, in Burton, but what they didn't get was as good a movie as they could have got if they cast yeah. Haig in that role, yeah. which he was already doing and would have been super hot in. And I have to say, I've seen Kenneth Haig in quite a few things. Saw him in The Deadly Affair the other oh, day yes. with James Mason. Uh, and um, he was excellent in that and completely different to his role in The Hard Day's Night as well. I, I yeah. think he was a very, very good and versatile actor. And yeah. I think it's a shame we don't have the Kenneth Haig reading of this on celluloid in place of the Burton yeah. one. As much as I love Richard Burton, and I do, uh, he's just not the right guy for this. Otherwise, there was a lot of really good casting um, mm. uh, in it. The other characters, um, Edith Evans does an excellent turn as the yeah. working class Mrs. Tanner, completely off off type. Um, yeah, I yeah, think yeah. Claire Bloom is lovely as, as Helena and you can totally... S- the, the difficult transition there, moment mm. from hatred to a romantic affair, but yes. she she manages that. I think Mary, you're as, as the impassive... She's quite yeah. an impassive thing, and she does that sort of brilliantly as well. She's a, yeah, Donald good. Pleasance uh, makes a good yeah. cameo, and Gary yeah, Raymond yeah, yeah. as Cliff is his Welsh buddy. I think he's superb. Yeah, he's really good. A difficult role that, and uh, and a great performance from him. So there's a lot of very very good performances, including Richard Burton's, but his was just yeah. wobbly cast. Anyway, we spent too long maybe yes. on that. There's nothing more We're to say. We're here to talk about music. Yeah. Here to talk about music. So let's move on to it's trad. A few years later, it's trad dad from. 62 um, yeah the peak of the commercial success of trad really yeah just before um, it fell away and Beatlemania actually so a perfectly yeah, timed yeah. film for many reasons and directed by um, Dick Lester Dick Lester mm. and of course it's an ensemble movie. well it's led by Helen Shapiro and Craig Douglas uh, but it's basically their little story uh, and the plot of the film is basically a clothesline to hang the various acts on. Yeah. And we are going to do an actual episode yeah, we, about we, we won't delve so too deeply into this, but it's a cavalcade of music, really. I mean, yeah. there are a lot of acts in this. There's just like yeah. 20 different musical acts in it. And it's not strictly trad either. No. Yeah. Well, a lot of it's trad on the British side of it. Helen mm. Shapiro, of course, and Craig Douglas aside, they're pure poppers. Yeah. Um, and John Layton, I think, is in it as well, yeah. who's a pop artist. Yeah, yeah. But I would say all the big suspects of British trad jazz are there. Chris Barber, yep. uh, Ackerbilt, Kenny Ball, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Terry Lightfoot's there. That's right, yeah. And then the pseudo one, like the Temperance Seven, are there as well. So there are a lot of the main British tradders. Mm. But it's just a succession of music, isn't it? Um, yeah. A very enjoyable film. But as I say, we, we don't want to go too much into no. dissecting it now. I, I guess we'll just talk a little bit about their actual performance Chris Barber's input yeah, and it's clearly a different lineup of the band to the one we saw in, in the yeah. first couple of movies because Monty Sunshine has gone and yeah. Donegan's long gone by this point Yeah, so it's a different lineup. but it's still obviously with Pat Hawcox and Ossie Patterson 
both sides. Yeah, and they give a tremendous performance, but I think it's become, because trad jazz has become a thing by this point, it's gone overground massively. Yep. It's no longer an underground thing for kids in, in yep. sweaty basements. This is now a big commercial overground thing, and I think it shows in their performance, not there's anything wrong with it, but there's something just a little bit staid about the presentation. And I think the choices of music, like, because it's down by, by the, the riverside, riverside and when the scenes go yeah, marching, yeah. it's the very cliched material that people always associate with this form of music, yeah. which is a little bit of a shame, but they play it brilliantly, and Ottilie Patterson is, is in It, it features Ottilie Patterson, obviously, much more as a central yeah. focal point, focal and vocal. Um, yeah, focal, and it does feel like there's more, more of a formulaic uh, feel to the, the general setup, which mm-hmm. is shared out with Acker and yeah. Kenny Ball, and they all have their different angles. On it, you yeah, know. different takes of the music, yeah, different takes of the music. yeah, but there is a formula. And Barbers is still more earthy, isn't it? Barbers is still more earthy. I think it's more blues based than the others. Yeah, uh, you know, Kenny Ball often had those sort of sl- ever so slightly Kenny and Acker sometimes went down a, a sort of from a broader base of music, like the sort of uh, March of the Siamese Children in uh, yeah. The King and I from yeah, Kenny yeah, yeah. Ball, and I think Acker does one from High Society in this one, yes. So yes. there's a there's a very much more contemporary or, or off the beaten track, certainly off the blues and New Orleans track, very very much off those in terms of some of the song selections from from a lot yes. of the trad jazzers at this point. And this is the year '62. Is you know commercially, I mean, we've already had Stranger on the Shore, Midnight yeah. in Moscow, all the yeah. big trad hits have happened by this point. Yeah. And '62, of course, is the year where the Beatles are signed by Parlophone. Yeah. And literally the music world changes. They don't have a big hit until 63. But Love Me Do comes out at the end of the year. Yep. And and then they explode big time in 63 and literally pushes trad, the trad scene right to the back. Yeah. You know, I mean, a lot of them carried on. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, Acker and, and Kenny Ball in particular carried on on variety shows and on the But, on the but critically, critically, they went out of the youth zone. Yeah, um, almost immediately into almost the variety zone. Yeah, uh, yeah. and that was really so. By, but uh, take it a few years later, not even a decade later, certainly a decade later. But mm. uh, and and that sort of music is the property of working men's clubs, yeah, cabaret shows, uh, and cabaret style TV as well, like the uh, Kenny Ball residency on Morecambe and Wise. That's right, and Pebble Mill at one and things like yeah. that. They all showed up, yeah. and it, in fact. It, it, I remember Billy Bragg mentioning in his book on Skiffle that he'd never cared for trad because of that, because it, it was so associated with variety shows and the cabaret circuit, and he couldn't understand it. He said it was backward looking and square, is how he perceived it. He didn't realise, and he had to sort of, when he started investigating the Skiffle thing, he said he sort of met some of the uh, musicians involved who were involved in it, and they had basically re-educated him on, yeah. or, re- or told him you know, where this music came from and the visceral beginnings of it, and, and, it, and it was. So that's his trad. We, that's we, we will talk about that. Will... It's a good, which is a good film, I think. But we will talk about it in we more depth. We will look at that in more depth at another time, yeah. and we'll move on to the final film, which is a film we've done 
a review of for Talking Pictures TV for the Talking Pictures TV podcast. Yes, yes. And that's where has poor Mickey gone? Which is a, a, a British B feature from 64. Yeah. Which was forgotten for a long time. It was sort of lost. I don't know if it was actually lost or whether it had just been neglected, but um, it was out of circulation for, for many decades until the 90s. And I don't think a complete print turned up till about 10 years ago or so. And it's a fascinating little B picture set in sort of darkest Soho, literally darkest Soho. Yeah. And it's about a gang of thugs on a rampage who pick on the wrong, uh, pick on the wrong person there. Flawed, but the theme tune is performed full to camera mm. by Ottilie Patterson. And although we don't see them, the band backing her up is the Chris Barber Blues Band in this case, which was uh, obviously an offshoot of his larger jazz band, yeah. jazz ensemble. Eddie Smith on banjo. Graham Burridge on drums and uh, Chris Barber himself in this instance like he would on the have been bass. On, in, uh, on the bass like he mm. w- had been in, in the skiffle outfit mm. but with a couple of guests there's a guitar in there that's not listed on the credits because the individual musicians are listed there's clearly an electric guitar playing a da 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 proper sort mm. of blues riff in there is that John Slaughter that would have been John Slaughter yeah. I reckon he he joined in 64 which is the year this film came out yeah. and I reckon he must have joined so soon to the making of the film that he didn't get credited yeah I reckon he must have literally that must have been perhaps his first session with the band or something um, so he wasn't credited but there's definitely electric guitar in there and that's almost certainly John Slaughter and then on harmonica get this the guest harmonica player with them with the ensemble and again, we don't see him. It's such a shame we don't mm. see him. But it is Sonny Boy Williamson II, the Chicago mm. blues legend, who was signed to Chess Records and made any number of, of, of great blues, uh, blues numbers. Which shows the standing that Chris Barber would have yeah. been held in that he could attract that sort of uh, an artist to perform with him. Yeah. So this is the real deal we have here. This is the re- Maybe not the real Sonny Boy Williamson, because there was another person who went under that name before. <laughs> uh, but also, it's a hugely evocative blues number that they play. Yeah. It's really well done. Uh, Oddly singing is, is great. And she wrote it. That's her own composition. Wow, I did not know that. That's amazing. Very moody start that really, really sets the tone. Because it bookends yes. the film as well. It, it starts and it's that very haunting ending of the film. Yeah. And then you've got that music comes back in, fades back up again over the over the very haunting ending of the film, which you won't spoil. It's a really effective piece of music. And once yeah. again, Chris Barber. And once again, Chris Barber. And by this time, obviously, Trad, as we said, Trad was out the window. But he's still making great blues music with some of the real protagonists of, of that scene. Mm. A genuine Chicago blues legend playing with them. And for such an odd little film, because it is an odd odd movie. Yes. And obviously we've spoken about it in more depth than talking pictures, but it's uh, it's an odd film and a flawed film, but a very evocative one. And this music that is written and performed by Ostley Patterson with the Chris Barber Blues Band really sets the tone. It really does. Uh, it, it starts very well and it ends very well. Yeah. And there are a few problems particularly in the first part, the first third of the film. In the structure of it, yeah. But it is quite a haunting uh, film, if you've not seen it. uh, Mm. It's obviously not in our series. It's not really a pop movie, so we wouldn't have covered it. Of course, it stars uh, uh, Warren Mitchell. Yes, yes. Excellent in the lead. And a young John Chalice. Yeah. And a young John Chalice. Boise, yes, Boise. Marlene. Marlene, yes, Mm. (laughs) little boy. So, yeah, very interesting film and well worth a watch. Well worth a watch if you haven't seen it. 
Yeah. Yeah, totally. So that's that, really. That's the four films. Yeah. It's not all of the films he was involved in. He nope. provided the music for several films. Um, but in terms of films that he and his band, to one way or another, appear or cameo in, yeah. then uh, then we just thought we'd give a tip of the hat and raise a glass to Chris Barber, who's absolutely a, one of our most important figures in, in 20th century music, in 20th century British music in particular. And one with the reach that stretches across the world. Yes, absolutely. Even if people don't know it. Absolutely. So um, that was a little mini episode. We'll rejoin you as soon as we can for our next main episode. For which I must just say, for the listeners out there, we are preparing a brand new and exciting format. Indeed. It won't be a million miles away from the podcast we hope you've enjoyed up to now, but we are introducing a few new uh, ideas into that new wrinkles over the next couple of episodes yeah yes, yes, yes. absolutely so we look forward to that indeed so please do join us again so until then I've been Matt Bragg and I'm still Gavin Lazarus with pop movies of a certain age.